Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Alvo? Yeah. Well, here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. And I am Sparrow. And I'm Andrew McCarran. And so today we're going to do something a little sideways, as we're apt, and that is that, you know, we were we were fetching around for a topic for this session, and it occurred to, I guess it occurred to me, that mm. we would contact somebody outside of the triad. We would call at the beginning of our session. Who, in fact, who, is one of our biggest fans. A big fan, yep. And who is going to give us the topic that we will then pick up, pass around, massage, break apart, and generally just bat around and see what happens, see what we can make of it. So I'm going to start to call Charles... Paker, and um, so I'm ringing him up now. Now, there's some idiosyncrasies with this whole process, because I can talk to Charles, and Charles can talk to me, and Sparrow and Andrew can hear Charles, but Charles cannot hear Andrew and Sparrow. So there's a built-in telecommunications wall, or blind, to this moment that we're now entering. Charles, is that you? I'm here. Hello. Wow. Right, bright and clear. <laughs> so the wires are touching. Uh, so, Charles, we're ready. We're here. Terrific. We're, we're not holding hands. We're holding eyes. <laughs> yeah. We're so tell, tell, tell me when to go. At the, dish, at the edge of the dish of honey. Okay, Charles. <laughs> Uh, now what we're going to do is pass it on to Sparrow, who's going to briefly introduce you. Okay, Charles is an old friend of mine that, uh, I mean, I call him Charlie, really. One of the most important uh, New York journalists. We met in uh, Tompkins Square Park. We were both pushing our daughters on the swings in the playground in Tompkins Square Park. Our daughters are now 29, so this was 28 and a half years ago. They were both six months old. They're pretty close to uh, the same age. And uh, we each have one child who is a daughter. And uh, probably uh, Charles is best known for his book, Madness, The Ten Most Memorable NCAA 
basketball finals. Um, and uh, I strongly recommend you purchase it. He's uh, an entertainment journalist, a, a master of knowledge about the business world, and uh, also an omnivorous reader and uh, kind of a renaissance man. He's Charles is a guy, Charlie, really, what am I calling him, Charles? Because you're calling him Charles, uh, is a guy who's interested in everything. That's how I see it. And, you know, he's always... I love talking to Charlie, and we always have conversations that never end. Oh, and we're born one day apart and mm. one year apart, one day and one year. Mm. My birthday is October 2nd. Charlie is October 3rd. And Charlie's a big fan of baffling combustions. Yeah. So, Charlie, Probably let's have it, fan. brother. Let's uh, hear what we're going to be confronting, addressing, dancing with, caressing, etc. <laughs> well, thank Thank you very much. I am a big fan. I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm honored to be on. I originally had a bit of a more complicated topic that I was going to suggest that took had different parts to it. But when we spoke on Friday, Sam said, "You know, we're really looking for one word," and you know that stuck with me. And and then it came to me. Uh, today. It came to me in an epiphany today, the perfect word for baffling combustions, which I would love to hear you guys discuss, and I'm sure you could, you can uh, really go at it for an hour or so, because it's a rich topic. And that word is Freud. <laughs> the only thing I would add is... I would love to uh, hear if you think Freud is still relevant today. If so, what, what is his relevance today? And what has the significance and impact of his of his work been on 20th century and human affairs? Wow. I'll let you guys take it. Thanks, Charlie. Yeah, real natural. Yeah. We'll jump in, and uh, I guess that you'll see the results in uh, in a week or so. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Have Many, fun. Many thanks. Bye. Bye-bye, Charlie. So I think that it would only be appropriate since uh, I'm definitely on the, you know, in the suburbs of Freud. I'm going to start and just say Freud joy. <laughs> this is what happens when you start talking about Freud. Your whole syntax falls apart. Freud means joy. For you? No, that's the German, I believe. Uh, that's the translation of Freud is joy. Mm -hmm. I think that Freud came up with something, in fact, called the joy principle, didn't he? And that was that was the pleasure principle. Ah, very good. Uh, yes, that's right. Come to think of it, Andrew is the one of us who's actually trained in thinking about Freud. Well, I think you know if we're talking about Freud the person. Sparrow, as I recall, you have the collected works of Sigmund Freud uh, there near at hand at your elbow, and that they're a constant recourse for you. You read a couple pages uh, every day or so, no? Uh, not exactly true. I certainly don't have his collected works, but I am always reading Freud. I'm always very slowly uh, and uh, gradually reading a book by Freud. The one I'm reading now, I forget the name of it, but it's edited by Susan Sontag's husband, her 
her first and only husband, who was a big Freud expert. It's Reef, a guy named Reef, wasn't it? That's right. Um, I think that's it. I could go get it if you give me a moment. But the one that's right at my elbow, literally at my elbow, is Dora, an analysis of a case of hysteria. Which was uh, uh, one of two complete case studies that Sigmund Freud completed. The two were Dora, and the second was the case study of the Wolfman. The Wolfman. The Rat Boy. Yeah, those were more fragments or snapshots, but Dora and the Wolfman were um, what we might uh-huh. refer to as comprehensive psychoanalytic case studies. Was he consciously seeking to do present two complete t- case studies, one male, one female? Was that a factor <laughs> in having just two fully fleshed out case studies? You know, that's a that's a great question. I don't have an answer to that. The Wolfman, I believe, was written after huh. Dora, and Freud's primary um, clientele were upper-middle-class Viennese um, women. So maybe he was trying to apply his theories to the experience of young men. It's possible. The interesting thing about the Wolfman is that the Wolfman lived until, I believe, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. He died in his 90s and mm-hmm. remained in psychotherapy. He, re- he remained in psychoanalysis, rather, and was interviewed toward the end of his life and expressed a great deal of um, incredulousness about Freud's theories on him. He thought Freud was a nice man, but Freud was off the mark and Freud um, really moved theory first was more interested in proving the theory than really listening to the client. I think there was something like that in yeah. the interview. And he I think, continued... you know, this came up just so you just so, you know, as the historian of baffling combustions. Yes, I remember it even. About the Wolfman before, and we've talked a little bit about Dora as well. Yeah, but when we discussed dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take Charlie's question about the uh what what seems um as if it continues to be informative and true in terms of the human condition. What about Freud? So much has been discredited, dismantled, questioned. What about the legacy of Freud from our perspectives? You know, the um you know, I'm talking a lot because I don't have I don't really know anything. So that's <laughs> <laughs> that must be Freudian. Yeah. Uh, there must be, you know, there's the triune structure, right? Just like us. The ego it and the super ego. Like I wonder which one basic... of us is the uh, which one of us is the ego, which is the id, and which is the super ego. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. a feeling but I'm that, the id. But that basic, I want to be the id. That, <laughs> that, that basic triune thing, though, is something that is an echo of the beginning of um, of the you know quote unquote. Uh, human experience as it's recorded, you know, as um, Don Bird said, we've never learned to count past three, hmm. which we've also said before in Baffling Combustions. But um, pardon me, but um, I think that sort of has still has resonance in the way people think about themselves. I don't know. I'm not sure if people I haven't seen reference to the id or even the libido much. There's a in recent years, you know, there's a new Saturday Night Live skit uh, that came out last night. Uh, it's about Zillow, 
You know this thing, Zillow? Yeah. It's a it's yes. kind of, oh, right. You would know, Andrew. You're probably on Zillow searching for the perfect summer house. Oh, yeah, it's, sorry. It's not a banking app. It's a real estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's house porn. Exactly. And that was... Yeah. Did you see this uh, skit on Saturday Night Live? That was exactly wow. the point, that they have these seductive-looking women and seductive-looking men and and they're uh, lounging back in scantily clad outfits, staring at the camera with lazy eyes. In other words, it's exactly in the style of some kind of escort service ad. And they're saying, forget about sex. You don't need that anymore. What you need is Zillow. Because looking at houses is the most erotic experience. And then it shows people in their homes and with their boyfriends staring at the screen. Oh, look, there's seven bedrooms and three bathrooms. And look at that gazebo. And, and you know, it's, it's like uh, real estate has replaced sex. Like the id now is saying, I want to buy a house. It's not saying I want to uh, have a conjugal relations with uh, that woman over there. Mm. I remember William Irwin Thompson in the 70s, I guess. He said that the model for the Levitt town and for the hmm. suburban idea of the eighth of an acre or sixteenth of an acre enclosed hmm. with a white picket fence with a single family dwelling. Hmm. And then this garden that you would have some petunias and uh, maybe some rose bushes and a lilac or something. These are part of an echo of, um, you know, that which was contained in the four rivers of paradise. And that, <laughs> that's, that's the ideal that, you know, that, that, um, contemporary society offers is the paradisical or, you know, the pleasure model. The Garden of Eden, you mean? The four rivers that run through the Garden of Eden? No, no, well, no, no. The, just the idea of the single-family, freestanding dwelling, you know, <clears> that <throat> has also <throat> this part that's paved where you put your car inside oh, yeah. of that <clears throat> rectangle or square, whatever your eighth of an acre or sixteenth of an acre might prove. You know what I'm interested in, in terms of Freud, and I think it has con continued relevance, is the, the, unknowable, the unknowable regions of the human mind. That, um, the subterranean, the unconscious, that the iceberg metaphor, right? That there are, um, or is a substantial part of our psyche that extraordinarily influential in, um, what we do and what we say and how we feel about being in the world, but that is very hard to get a read on or to understand consciously. Mm -hmm. It resists intelligibility. But it uh, propels us. It defines us in, in many mm. ways. Um, for me, I guess Freud's concept of the unconscious, not that it's particular to Freud, because that concept preceded Freud mm. in Western intellectual and medical and theological tradition. But um, I'm, I continue to be intrigued by that, just intuitively, mm -hmm. in my um, experience of this thing we call a self. Mm. Yeah, there's a book uh, called The Heroes I Have Known. I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. Written by this guy. I forget his name. He used to be Trotsky's literary agent. He was a communist who later became an anti-communist. 
And in this uh, book, he he meets all sorts of amazingly famous people that you could meet back in 1917. And one of them is Freud. And he goes up to Freud and he says, how do you know there is an unconscious? Like, what, what makes you sure there's an unconscious? And I think Freud says to him something like, don't worry, there's an unconscious. You know, like, like I know for sure there's an unconscious. And Freud is, you know, a famous... Um, agnostic, atheist, really. I read his great book, uh, The Future of an Illusion. I think it's the greatest uh, atheist tract ever written. He's a man of science. He's a man of empiricism, according to himself. And yet his belief on, in the unconscious is almost borders on the mystical and mm. contains all sorts of kind of aspects that, that many of us who are, you know, spiritual people, if I can use that terrible term, you know, would ascribe to God or to mystical states. So, but it seems to me that I read somewhere recently that, you know, they're doing all these brain scans, neurological. Now they've got the brain all mapped and they haven't found an unconscious. I don't know if that's true. I think I read that somewhere. I don't know how they would find it. <laughs> well, what's interesting is that, you know, when, from one perspective, you could say that the project, the ultimate project of Google and Facebook and what's the other one? Google, Facebook and Instagram. Or <laughs> yeah, that's a codicil, I guess, of Facebook now. TikTok? But at any rate, yeah, is to, is to map the unconscious. <laughs> um, you know, and according to that view, the unconscious is the articulation of algorithms that we're unconscious of, of patterns of instigation or patterns of input and our reactions to those various things that seem as though they emerge out of a primordial, Thonian, unknown darkness and so forth. But it's simply because we don't know ourselves well enough or don't know ourselves as well as Facebook and Google and whatever that third thing is <laughs> proposed propose to come to know us. I mean, one of my thoughts lately is that conspiracy theories are sort of connected to unconscious feelings. Like, conspiracy theories are all true in a certain sense. They're all based on a feeling you have that, for example, QAnon is, is saying that these people that run our society, particularly these politicians, these liberal politicians who say all these nice, bland, charming things, actually they're having sex with children and then eating them. And yeah, drinking blood. Yeah. And there's some kind of feeling, a kind of an unconscious feeling that you have when you look at these political figures, even very nice ones, that there's sort of a facade and that behind that is something else, something that they're holding back, a kind of a, you know, what, what uh, Freud would say, a kind of repression that, that goes into the unconscious. And it's, you know, I don't believe the QAnon conspiracy myself, but I think it, it, points to an emotional feeling that people have that is kind of, I would call maybe an unconscious impulse. I, I think that's um, very much in line with Freudian theory. 
insofar as the unconscious being populated by these emotional traces. Mm-hmm. Emotional, well, gonna... emotional traces, emotional memories that really want to be midwifed into narrative. Mm. Um, and the uh, the thoughtful therapist um, will help the analyst and the patient construct the narrative in a way that makes sense based upon other clues and cues. But um, it's just as likely that a bad therapist or someone without therapy could generate absolutely crazy delusional narratives based upon those very real emotional traces circulating through the unconscious like a particle of dread. Mm. Interesting. So what you're saying is that QAnon is magnetizing these traces and concocting kind of a sideways poor poor story i yeah that's reinforced that's reinforced through repetition um that's out there in the web sure and i think sparrow's right i think that the emotions underneath it are radiating a lot of energy for these people in these communities like so it feels real in the way that emotions can feel real it's just that the narrative expression of the emotion, I think, is uh, very dangerous and delusional and pathological. This notion that Hillary Clinton and one of her aides slaughtered a disabled girl and drank her blood. And there's video footage of this available if you go mm-hmm. into the dark web. Really dark shit. Well, the one thing I would say, and I don't know if I brought this up before, but back in the day in the 90s, I used to work in public relations. Mm-hmm. And the circumstances of that work involved a lot of people from the 10021 area code. And so I would meet these women. There were a lot of women, and it seemed to be sort of like a circle of women who were doing a bunch of literary enterprises. And then their men who would show up at these some um, mm-hmm. these at these literary fets or, you know, get-togethers, sometimes involving reading, but, you know, happening at, like, the Morgan Library. Oh, or, yeah. You know, yeah, um, did a lot of things at the Frick, things like that. And my business partner in this enterprise was a woman who knew many of these people very intimately, um, and so she knew all their stories. And what was always, like, incredible for me is that I would meet some like truly patrician, well put together, you know, the kind of guy who was, he was tall. He had kind of a, he would have, you know, this is, I'm just putting together something, you know, kind of the hooked nose and the mm. clear blue eyes, you know, this <laughs> kind of, you know, um, almost like an eagle. And then like perfect clothes, you know, mm. maybe wearing a, some kind of pink tie with a beautiful light blue shirt and <laughs> everything was perfect cufflinks the whole you know the whole thing mannerisms like very groomed you know saying oh, the perfect thing with the perfect intonation etc cetera, etc cetera. so i turned to my business partner at the end of one of these things and say wow you know wasn't paul schlaminger you know what a well put together guy and my business partner would say Oh, yeah. Well, he has slept with his stepdaughter. Oh, and, 
Yeah, and as a drug addict. (laughs) (laughs) That was the... And it was all like over and over it happened. You know, it happened numerous on numerous occasions. Mm -hmm. So I realized that some of these guys really do have a compensatory darkness that Mm -hmm. they're hiding behind this kind of perfect patina. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, uh, according to one conspiracy theory. That (laughs) That was why Stanley Stanley Kubrick died. Oh, yeah? Stanley Kubrick was making this film called Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I saw it. Right. Terrible movie. With Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And mm-hmm. it wasn't at all about um, looking behind that veneer of the um, 0.05%, the patrician mm-hmm. class, and um, finding out that there's some real dark stuff happening, maybe even human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. According to some um, theory I read, there were certain scenes deleted from that final orgy, that oh. the orgy scene toward the end of the film, and that um, Stanley Kubrick was trying to out something that uh, he oh. had encountered through his, I guess, experience over the decades in the uh, the Hollywood, the wealthy Hollywood scene. Mm-hmm. But I don't ascribe to this theory, but I know it's out there. So then, because he died a little bit suddenly, or yeah, a little, suddenly, little young. And he did not finished the film. The film was left on. Is that right? Yeah. So he didn't edit it. And uh, according to this theory, there are scenes that were deleted and it was edited in a way that um, Hollywood eyes did. Mm. But it was far from his intention. So Mm. would this so would this material be sort of more in Sparrow's neck of the woods as our representative id? Well, yeah, now that I'm the id, I, I feel a little unqualified to well, look. Uh, what's endorse every orgy. I just thought the movie was very joyless. First of all, it destroyed the relationship of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and uh, forced them to live in a kind of virtual kind of slavery to Kubrick for a year and a half. I think they lived in his house with them because he was a notorious agoraphobe in London. So they... It was a painful experience that eventually wrecked their relationship. And then the movie is just the most joyless movie about sex ever made. I mean, speaking as our id, I think that, uh, you know, uh, the sexuality should be a little enjoyable. (laughs) It shouldn't look like uh, these uh, mannequins uh, posing on an empty floor uh, topless. Yeah, right. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition to the unconscious, I just wanted to say that Freud sensed that there was something therapeutic about talking, ah. that you could experience tharsis mm-hmm. through through the speech act, through talking about what troubled you um, in dialogue with someone else, that that could lead to substantial psychic and um, also um, physical healing in the case of what he referred to as hysteria, right, the body absorbs stress and, and trauma in different places and um, it can be quite severe but if you're able to talk about it if you're able to name it if you're able to midwife whatever it is that's um, afflicting you into words in a relatively compassionate relational structure that can be medicinal that and I, I, that appeals to me I mean I have two minds about it sometimes I think or I often think increasingly that language gets in the way 
but I, I've all from childhood I felt that there's something deeply therapeutic about being able to, to speak, to talk, to share through words. I, I stole Eric Bloomberg's watch in, in nursery school and I kept it inside of me, not the watch. <laughs> the guilt. It was um, an early digital watch. It had a light on it and maybe even a calculator. This you was just a, took it? I just took it. I slipped it into my community Methodist nursery school bag. I, <laughs> I would wait for the minibus at the Bloomberg house. You were like four years old? And I guess I was about five years old. This was before kindergarten. And I remember um, sitting with the uh, devastating emotion that I had stolen something for days. And then barging into my mother and father's room one night, it felt like it was the middle of the night, and breaking down and confessing. Mm-hmm. And I felt just so much lighter. I, the fact that I was able to talk about it alleviated um, this tremendous Kilimanjaro-sized weight <laughs> on the shoulders of my young heart. And I think that that has remained true through my... What about your parents? How did they respond? Very thoughtfully, like uh, holding my hand, telling me it was going to be okay. Wow. Um, not, mm. I, I felt nurtured. I felt I felt heard. Yeah, mm. you had great parents. I mean, have. Yeah. Anyway, do you feel similar about language and about the the talking cure? I guess that's what Freud referred to it. That there's something there. There's some. There's something. Well, you know, I'm there. not an expert on exactly what Freud did, but my feeling is. He started out with hypnosis. He he thought hypnosis was the cure to everything. No. First, he started out with cocaine. He thought cocaine was the cure for depression. And I once, uh, this sounds unbelievable, but I once researched this, you know, in uh, four seconds, 4.3 seconds on the uh, internet. And apparently Freud's uh, essay about the importance of cocaine came out the same year that Coca-Cola came out when it still had cocaine in it. Really? It seems impossible, but it, uh, that's my memory that I found what, out this correlation. What was that essay? I know he brings it up in the interpretation of dreams. It's very early, right? The 1880s, the 1870s. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. But he, he, in the in the interpretation of dreams, which was um, published in 1899, although copyrighted 1900, because he wanted it to um, coincide with the beginning of the new century. Um, oh, right. Freud writes about his problems with cocaine, that in addition to thinking that it cured um, depression or helped people open up, he thought initially that it was really good for the analyst because it, it helped the analyst focus. You could enter hmm. into a, you know, a hyper focus on what you were listening to. Probably true. And, he and also just, he, he wrote a lot of books. I don't know if that was because he was a cokehead. He was injecting it. He was injecting essentially what is a speedball. Wow. With hypothermic huh. needles. What do you mean? Speed plus coke? Is that what speed No, I mean, is? Um, just like cocaine mainlined into the vein. Oh, yeah. yeah. In a water solution? In some sort of saline or water solution. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Around the same time as uh, Sherlock Holmes was uh, on cocaine. I think that's yeah. like right around the same. Because I think he, Sherlock Holmes died around, what, 1900, came back from the dead around 1905, something like that. Now, is doing coke, is that, and that's not so much of an id thing, but what is it that drives one to stick a needle in your arm? You're asking what, oh, from symbolically, or are you asking more 
practically. Like ego, super ego, id. What is it that the shot of Coke helps? I think it's the id, right? The id is is wants to have lots of fun, and the super ego says, no, you should not have fun. That's not responsible. And the ego is kind of caught in between trying to decide, well, I'll just have a little cocaine today. Tomorrow I'll take the day off for my coke habit. That's the the ego's purpose is to kind of negotiate between the two, the the willful kind of childlike urges of the id and the adult-like, uh, all-knowing, uh, responsible mm. voice of the superego. What do you well, think, well, Andrew? Am I right? Well, well, well the yeah. thing is, when he's, when he's mentioning coke, isn't he uh, speaking of its therapeutic attribution, which right. would be sort of the negotiation of the ego, where the superego is trying to foist some kind of palliative or medicinal quality to something that the id just gets off on. I, I think he, he believed that if you, um, if you, if you um, do a lot of coke, that you'll, your defenses will thin, that, that you'll be less inhibited. There's a, mm. higher, there's a higher likelihood that um, just through the, the, the rapid speech act mm. that, that you will share something um, significant that will be cathartic. That, in, in a similar sense, um, LSD was used by um, psychoanalysts and psychiatrists um, to great effect with much success, according to the medical literature in the 1940s and 1950s, particularly in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan, <laughs> um, that it, it, because it, it helped people with uh, addictions. It was used primarily to treat addiction. Psychoanalysts used LSD to get a sense of what people were struggling with that was causing the drinking. These were Freudians or yeah, well, they were, No, these were um, psychiatrists trained as Freudian psychoanalysts. Um, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. one thing about Freud I think that we have to uh, discuss. When you're talking about Freud, you got to talk about all the kind of variations on Freud because almost as soon as there was Freud, um, in a way, Freud and Marx are very similar uh, in this regard. They have their orthodoxy. They've got the perfect answer to everything, both of them. Mm-hmm. And then even in, the, in their own lifetime, most famously with Carl Jung, who was the great disciple of Freud and turned on him in a famously Oedipal moment and started his own whole method. Mm-hmm. But almost from the beginning... People are taking Freud and kind of shooting off like uh, fireworks in every direction uh, away from Freud. And, you know, I think that's maybe the greatest testament to Freud is that he's Mm. a very fruitful thinker. You read his stuff and you start getting ideas and your ideas are always not strictly Freudian. That's interesting. When it it comes to Jung, the dispute, um, at least at the beginning, was over dreams, the status of Mm. dreams that that Jung just rejected this notion that all dreams were wish fulfillment. Oh, right. He believed in a, um, a much more expansive understanding of the various modalities and typologies of, of the dream world. And really the militant atheism of uh, Freud and this sort of scientism, what you might, what I think that's a term people use now, that's, you know, meaning that everything has to be super scientific, even though, I mean, I think that's the biggest contradiction in Freud. I mean, to just talk about Freud in a global manner is to say, which maybe I already said, 
here's a guy who thinks that he's a scientist and he really thinks like a poet, literally thinks like a poet. I mean, he looks at dreams and makes these crazy leaps that only a poet would leak would make. And then he says, well, you know, that's according all fits into my scientific theory. And then he explains the theory. Sparrow, that's an, that's an incredible insight. So what you're saying is that when somebody makes a, a big break, one judge of its effect is that it fosters numerous splinter groups mm. that arise around it or that out of it relate more ideas or more views is the success of a of an insight well i mean i think it's certain kinds of insights are that way maybe not every one i don't know that um, for example einstein's breakthrough which is kind of contemporaneous with freud i don't think had this exact same kind of effect i think there's um, you know there's elaborations on the theory of relativity but there isn't like 300 schools of Einsteinian physics. It's kind yeah. of one. Okay. Yeah, and sort of ditto with Darwin also. Yeah, interesting, guess. yeah. yeah. One is humanistic, and, and, and one is more mathematical. And yeah. Pure. But I mean, I mean, it's something I think of as a poet that, you know, for example, Allen Ginsberg, who was kind of a hero of mine, and I also studied with him, I tried to imitate his poetry for years, and uh, it goes nowhere. There's no, it's of no use to imitate, doesn't work to imitate Ginsburg's poetry. You're never going to be a good poet by imitating uh, Ginsburg. You have to kind of forget about Ginsburg. Whereas maybe perhaps there are other types of poets, but which one? Well, I think uh, Browning supposedly was an inspiration to uh, Ezra Pound. Supposedly, uh, one theory is that modernism comes out of Browning. Hang it all, there can be but one Sordello. <laughs> Hang it all, Browning, there can be but one Sordello. Can, what is that? Uh, Browning from? said famously about that poem that there used to be two who understand what Sordello you know, was doing, what his intention was, and now there's only God because I've forgotten. One thing that you're saying is that it's in opposition grow a particular line of thought. I mean, I, that's kind of what I think about literary influences, that by trying to, I think one big breakthrough I had was I tried to write the opposite of a John Donne sonnet. I just took every line and reversed it. So if it said something like, thou art as fair as a daisy I wrote, thou aren't as fair as a daisy. I mean, it was that simple. I just reversed yeah. everything. And it seemed like some kind of breakthrough for me to yeah. just negate. So this, yeah, there was the um, Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence, which, which I guess obviously has a Freudian flair to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I think maybe that the Oedipal theory is more important than the uh, tripartite self, uh, the ego, the id, and the superego, which seems a little out of date. Uh, I mean, one theory that comes to mind to me, because I'm a uh, neo-Marxist, at least in my own mind, is that under production capitalism, the superego is telling you, you've got to get to work. You've got to go to work the next day. You've got to be responsible. Whereas 
under consumer capitalism, which is what we live under now since about 1965, the superego is telling you, go out, spend more money. Uh, you need to uh, consume more goods to be a good American. You, why do you only have one type of Band-Aid? You should have a six types of Band-Aids. So the superego has become the id. Everything's gotten all mixed up. So it's not as clear anymore. But I think the Oedipal theory is a little bit more eternal, a little bit more always valid, which is, mm. uh, let's see, that uh, the anxiety of influence is you have a father. Your father is Allen Ginsberg. He's your poetic father. You have to kill him and marry your mother. Mm-hmm. That this is idea Mary of, Elizabeth Bishop. Yeah, this idea of generational differentiation. Another, another three, I might add, in the family romance, the mother, the father, and the child within the Oedipal struggle, the Oedipal... Oh, maybe there was something triangular sort of, in the way Freud thought. I was thinking, Sparrow, when you were talking about a marker of the success of Freudian theory being the proliferation of um, counter-theories and sectarian theories, um, it reminded me of the structure of the Talmud. <laughs> in, in How term- do you mean? Oh, right. Yeah, in, in terms of a debate that is grounded in the same text with the Mishnah, but the, the various rabbinic commentaries included in the Talmud um, are often very much at odds, disagree, create new theories. Mm. That, and I, I'm interested in, in ways that Freudian theory and Freud himself remain very much influenced by Judaica, by Judaism, the Judaism of his youth. So it's just a thought that occurred to me. I, I don't know if he had much grounding in the Talmud. I do know that um, he he loved the story. He was influenced by the story of Joseph, especially mm. the moment when Joseph, of course, is freed from prison to interpret the dreams of, um, of Pharaoh. Like, right. In other words, Freud is kind of playing out the life of Joseph, who uses his ability to uh, understand dreams as the source of his power and eventually becomes essentially the de facto leader of Egypt. Yes, that's right. There is something a little megalomaniacal about Freud, I think, yes. that that he kind of sees himself, like you were saying about him having kind of a Moses complex, that he, he feels that he's really cracked the code of human life and now he's reached the other level. Yeah, I don't I don't know if we got this part mm. uh recorded before, but I was saying that that with Jews I see this in Jewish thinkers that there's always some kind of messianism. There's always this feeling like I've got the answer. This answer will bring about the perfect world that will be saved. That we will save the world and it's this world like Marx Okay, he was maybe not exactly a Jew because his father converted to Christianity, but there's a feeling like somehow in this world can be saved through the proper theory. And then maybe the practice, too, where the uh, instead of religion, you have your your therapy. Isn't Judaism or, you know, the practice, it's matrilineal. Right. Oh, right. And well, isn't they... that in part to guard the genetic boundaries so that the next Messiah isn't there always the sense that 
you know, the next Messiah is to come and to mm-hmm. refound the the temple, I guess, in Jerusalem, right? Yeah, and and I it seems to me in uh, Eminent Victorians, that book by uh, uh, Lytton Strachey, he talks about Cardinal Newman, who believed that the second coming of Christ would happen through the Jews, that, that Jesus would definitely be reborn to a Jewish mother. So I, I think this... I think that's one reason, supposedly, that the Christians never utterly exterminated the Jews, mm-hmm. that they were waiting the, for the second coming. But this thing of of anticipating the Messiah, an idea can be messianic, is what I'm saying. So maybe that, in part, oh. is an instigation to Jewish people to come up with, uh, you know... Oh, I see. I, I just think that yeah. the concept of the Messiah which is somewhat unique, arguably unique to the Jews. I don't think the concept of the second coming of Christ is exactly the same concept to my mind. Um, I think that just having that idea tends to lead one's mind towards these uh, utopian theories. And then I think that's one way that that other generations, like uh, Wilhelm Reich comes to mind who I think took Freud's ideas and made them even more utopian. That you sit mm-hmm. in an orgone machine, you accumulate enough orgone, which is this mystical sort of uh, sort of spiritual substance that permeates the universe. And yeah, we've, yeah you know, anyway like that. that. Yeah, that 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 there's there's a way to kind of reach the perfect world through I proper orgone. I tend to think so. <laughs> I, I tend to think so. I think that there, I see glimmers, you know, possibilities. I'm in my life. I'm a bit disappointed that we didn't get so far. Yeah, it's uh, slow. My my favorite neo Freudian, if I could call him that, would be a French theorist who I mentioned before, Paul Ricoeur. Paul Ricoeur wrote this book length essay on a book that Freud wrote. That's largely considered to be the first psychobiography his book on a memory of Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book. I don't know when exactly. I would guess maybe um, 19, maybe the early 20s. Um, I I forget. But at any rate, Paul Ricoeur um, wrote a book on sublimation. And he believed that uh, Freud was most wrong in Freud's um, amplification, obsession, preoccupation with regressive energies. That so much of um, who we were and what we said and how we felt could be traced back to some primordial wound, um, yeah, events from early childhood, events that transpired primarily around the Oedipal complex, which what, what would be two to five years old from a developmental perspective. And Paul Ricoeur thought that it was through the defense of sublimation that human beings moved regressive struggles. I think I've said this before. That human mm-hmm. beings are able to move regressive struggles to progressive solutions. Mm-hmm. It was really what you did with um, your um, unconscious struggles, those regressive energies in your life space to create something new that was the uh, the gravitational center of the human person. How do you how do you sublimate? Is it not just through art? 
It's it's through all sorts of things, I guess. Yeah, through narrative, you could sublimate through art. You can sublimate, um, yeah, it's through your relationships, right? Like mm. you had a challenging relationship with your mom. That challenge may sublimated into your relationship with your another woman, a girlfriend, or, or a wife, mm. right? Mm. Uh, but you try to try to work it out through that relationship. You know, you're sublimating it into mm. a new form. Yeah, That's understand it. But I, to be honest, I'm a little like confused as to what the difference is between sublimation and displacement. What is displacement? Huh. It, I don't know what that is. There's a list of Freudian defenses. There's like repression. There's displacement, where you displace one thing on another. Like hmm. in a dream, if instead of um, I don't know, seeing like a phallus, you see a table, or you know, you've displaced one onto the other. There's hmm. sublimation. There's um, condensation where you combine uh-huh. things. Like, mm. for instance, in a, in a dream last night, I was both um, on a mountain and oh. off in a cellar in like an architectural <laughs> structure. And simultaneous. I can, you, mean, simultaneous. you mean you were in a cellar that was on a mountain? No, I was uh-huh. on a mountain, but it was also a cellar. I was in a cellar, but it was uh-huh. also a mountain that yeah. the two were condensed into one. In yeah. an irrefutable way, I just you know intuitively recognized what it is. What um, about that thing where you project onto project. your therapist? Yeah, that's, that's another defense: projection. Projection. Yeah. 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 What about just like curling up in a ball? Is that regression? That's regression. That's dealing with life by assuming the fetal position. The one where you hop on one foot while simultaneously screaming at the top of your lungs. That's um, uh, what's the primal scream therapy. Well, hey, look, listen to this. The only Freud like theory of Freud's Freudian diagnosis from orthodox Freudian theory that remains in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual wow. Disorders, there's only one. Wow. And it has nothing to do with the Oedipal complex, right? It's it's something called conversion disorder. Wow. Oh. And it's Which one. Is- one of Freud's earliest theories, it wasn't his theory, it's what he was developing when he was in Paris, right after he finished his medical degree, training to be a neurologist. Yeah. He's there working with a very famous French neurologist named Jean-Jacques Charcot. And, Char- and he's doing something weird with, like, uh, mollusks or something. He's, it, like, uh, you know, straining the brains of mollusks or something like that. With Charcot, they're doing hypnosis. He's learning the technique oh, yeah? of hypnosis. And that's when he um, he realizes that it's uh, psychic trauma or psychogenic trauma that creates a lot of biological problems, like huh. indigestion mm. or um, paralysis on the right side or um, right. You know, migraines. And that, this is conversion. And once you deal with the underlying problem, the, the physical symptom dissipates. So people still believe that that happens. Yeah, well, it's verifiable. It happens all the time where someone will go through some challenging episode and then suddenly um, they can't walk on one foot. And they'll yeah. go see their GP and the GP might send them to a psychiatrist who realizes that actually what huh. went on here, that this is a conversion disorder. So it's still, that's still in the medical literature. Can I just say how much of the force of that insight is driven into massage schools and 
different mm. forms of mm. therapy um, in that line and maybe even acupuncture. Because I think oh. there are instances in which through touch you're able to identify, to get into communication with that trauma and then release it so it's been buried a bunch of time and happened a long time ago and then suddenly is is surfaced. Well, who was that guy, Sam, that we worked with at Bard, um, Peter, what was his last name? He taught at the new school for a while. He lived in Phoenicia. Then he moved out to the Pacific Northwest. Huh. Oh, yeah. Wallace. Peter Wallace. Peter Wallace was a massage therapist. Um, that's how he made his money living in Phoenicia. He would travel to Manhattan and spend a few days a week giving him private massages. And he said regularly he would um, massage it's some, somewhere in the body, the legs or the arms or the backs. The back, I suppose, and people would cry or start laughing or suddenly share a memory or an association. Mm. And he explained it as precisely what you just described as un, you know, releasing that trace localized in that part of the body. Body memory? Kind of, Isn't that the phrase, body memory? I guess it, it may be. It and may it's be. kind of uncanny. And what's interesting is that it in part is identified by language and speech that, huh. it, create, that it foments or oh, causes a speech act where, yeah. Hmm. To go back to your uh, primacy of speech as, a, as therapy. But it's almost the other way around, yeah. the, op the opposite direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. And it might be, I mean, when I first moved up here to uh, Phoenicia, in 1998, I'd been in therapy for quite a while. I was kind of addicted to therapy, and I considered going into therapy around here. But one thing, it was expensive because it was all designed for upper-middle-class people, and uh, there wasn't enough therapists in Manhattan. There's so many therapists that some of them are going to be good and cheap. But here, there's not that many therapists. And then the other thing is a lot of them want to... Uh, feel up your body they want to massage you or do this and that to your body and uh, i don't like being touched by people it's part of my neurosis <laughs> you know a friend a friend of mine just said he he quit therapy because every time it was finished the therapist insisted on a big hug <laughs> uh. yeah i hate that hugging i hope this coronavirus never leaves because uh I like being 20 feet away from people while I'm talking to them. When I was a young hippie, well, did I discuss this already? I had to hug everyone, and it was so... Uh, yeah, yeah. There's one thing I wanted to ask you guys as, you know, somewhat Freud mavens, is <laughs> I have a very sketchy sense of what Freud's marital life was like, and I don't have any real sense of, of, the, of Freud's wife, I guess. Is there something that we could talk about there? Is, is that the thing with, didn't he sleep with his wife's sister? Well, That's what I have in my mind, that he had some kind of long-term affair with his wife's sister. And maybe, I don't know if he slept with his patients. I'm not, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um, the, what you're referring to, I, Peter Gay. Um, the, the Freud biographer wrote, I guess, the definitive biography of Freud in the English language. And um, he amended that, reissued it based upon some evidence that Freud had um, overnighted in the Alps with his <laughs> uh, 
sister, his uh, wife's sister, mm. that, that they had signed um, a registry as husband and wife, and then <laughs> retired to <laughs> to the suite of hotel rooms. Just or, once, or several times, I don't know. But that it had been very compelling, and it was obvious that it was what was going on. And Peter Gay, in his um, original biography, had made the claim or intimated that Freud walked the straight and narrow. Oh, I see. Monogamy and faithfulness to uh, to his wife. I don't know much about her. Isn't that right. interesting? What was his own amatory experience, broadly speaking? But, you know, what did he have a sustaining and loving marriage? Uh, he, I think that according to biographers, he did. Um, she was the, the granddaughter of um, a very influential rabbi, mm-hmm. Isaac Bernays, who was the chief rabbi um, in Hamburg, Germany. Huh. They were married pretty young, and um, they remained married. Um, she lived a long life. She died at the age of 90. She outlived Freud. Hmm. She died in the um, the early 1950s, I seem to recall. Right. He died, what, 1940? Right after the, uh, mm. right at the end of the, uh, was it right at the beginning of the Second World War? The yeah, I think uh, he, he, had to, he got kicked out of Vienna by the Nazis in 39, which is quite late. He moved to London and set up his office exactly in a replica of what it looked like in Vienna. And you can visit it now in London. It's some kind of a museum with little artifacts. He collected, uh, you know, Roman ruins, little things. Yeah, he died in, I just looked it up. He died in 1939. Yeah, so I think he moved to London in 39 or was it 38? And then he died, you know, almost immediately. Because he was suffering from cancer, like throat cancer and cancer of the palate, the soft tissue. He had to, had to, had to be fitted for a um, prosthesis, some sort of insert into the mouth to, um, to hold everything together. Because Interesting in terms of uh, speech. Speech? Oh, yeah. Interesting the, in terms yeah. of the, yeah, it's a... It's a spoken therapy and it's interesting that he had that impasse and i'm sitting on top of freud's last words because i worked for a guy a psychiatrist who's in his 90s still living by the name of robert j lifton who was a close associate and friend of eric erickson who himself oh. studied under freud and lifton and erickson were part of this group called the wealthy fleet group they would meet um on cape cod every year Wellfleet oh. cape cod and um, after they got to know each other, they went on a uh, they had known each other for decades. And one summer went on a walk and Eric Erickson revealed to Robert J. Lifton what Freud's final words were. Huh. And huh. Robert J. Lifton told me at a McDonald's huh. across the street from the New York Public Library. And huh. his final words were, it's no use. Really? So. On baffling combustions, maybe the first mention of Freud's final words. This, this who knows? This is a <laughs> moment. <laughs> this has never been written anywhere. According to Robert J. Lifton, no. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.